Welcome to Smith Memorial Online. We are located in Collinsville, Virginia. We are glad you joined us today. If you head over to our webpage, you can find more ways to serve, more sermons like this, as well as opportunities to support this ministry through giving. We pray God's blessing on the hearing and the doing of God's Word. Amen. studying selected topics in the book of Joshua, and we've talked about the purpose of the book of Joshua. We talked about the problem of war, conquest, and genocide. We talked about uh, some of my favorite stories, the stories of Rahab and Achan in Joshua 2 through 7. And we talked about another one of my favorite stories, the story of the great altar on Mount Ebal, Uh, in Joshua 8, verses 30 through 35, a story I never get tired of telling. In general, the book of Joshua provides a sweeping account of how God gave the Israelites the land of Canaan in fulfillment of the promise he had made to Abraham to give his descendants the land of Canaan, way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Joshua, Uh, Many years have passed. We don't know how many, but we're told in Joshua 23 that it was when Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Uh, A little later, the writer will say he was about to go the way of all the earth, uh, which means he was about to die. But in Joshua 24, at that point, after many years had passed, he gathered all the tribes of Israel together and all the leaders of the tribes for a great convocation in which he would ask them to renew their covenant with God. And once the people had gathered, Joshua began his remarks with a review of Hebrew history. And I want to read a portion of this to you from the book of Joshua, chapter 24, that all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. The text reads, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in its midst, and afterward I brought you out." 
When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. When they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did to Egypt. Afterwards, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I handed them over to you, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then King Balak, son of Zippor of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent and invited Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he blessed you. So I rescued you out of his hand. When you went over, to the, over the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I handed them all over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove out before you the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and towns that you had not built, and you live in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant. I feel like I should say the word of the Lord. <laughs> We'll come back to the text in just a minute. As you saw here, Joshua begins by saying, long ago your ancestors. Uh, he reviews the sweep of Israelite history here, beginning with the ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham. But what I want to stress to you here is, as he reviews this history, and Joshua lived beyond two, he says, long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates, and served other gods. Now, he doesn't say which gods they served, probably because Exodus chapter 23, verse 13, prohibits invoking or even speaking the name of other gods. But we know that the patron deity of Ur, Abraham's hometown, was the moon god, a god named Sin, S-I-N. It looks like the English word sin, but it has no relationship to it, the God seen. This God was very popular throughout all of Mesopotamia, and there were many, many other gods in the Mesopotamian pantheon. So Abraham and his family lived uh, in southeast Mesopotamia and worshiped seen and a whole host of other gods. But God spoke into the midst of all this idolatry and called Abraham to leave Ur and go to a land he would show him. He brought Abraham, led him through Canaan, multiplied his offspring, as verse 3 says. Well, eventually those offspring lived in Egypt as slaves, as we saw in the text, but God raised up Moses to liberate them, as Joshua said in verse 5. And then he led the Israelites across the Red Sea, but as he says in verse 7, he caused the Egyptians to perish in the Red Sea. The Lord then sustained the Israelites in the wilderness, Joshua says in verse 7, and then he brought them out of the wilderness to the land of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan River. And he handed the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua says in verse 8, and gave them their land. Now one of the Amorite kings summoned a Mesopotamian prophet 
named Balaam to curse the Israelites. Uh, and this is one of my favorite stories in the Pentateuch, Numbers chapter 22. Uh, summons Balaam to curse the Israelites. What he's trying to do is prevent the Israelites from uh, heading west and crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Summons Balaam to curse the Israelites. Balaam was a special type of a prophet called a Baru. And Baru prophets were believed to be able to control gods and spirits by said The Baru would make pronouncements and speak curses and cast spells. And it was believed that the Baru, when he did this, could actually control the gods. He would fo force the, the gods' hands to do something. But every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, you know the story, Joshua says here in the text, God would not listen to Balaam. <laughs> and he caused Balaam, he flipped, uh, flipped the coin on its head and caused Balaam to actually speak blessings upon Israel. Well, the Israelites crossed over in the land of Canaan, and the seven nations of Canaan attacked them, Joshua says in his review. In verse 11, but God handed those seven nations over to the Israelites. And then Joshua concludes his summary in verse 13, where he says, speaking for the Lord, I gave you a land on which you had not labored. I gave you towns you had not built, and now you live in them. You eat the fruit of their vineyards and olive yards. None of this, you know, you didn't put any of this together. So we have this thumbnail sketch of Israel's early history from the call of Abraham all the way to the conquest. Um, and it's a story of God's gracious initiative and provision. Every step of the way, when you look at Joshua's speech here, he's telling a story of how it was God's initiative that moved the story of redemption forward. Every point, God's saying, I summoned Abraham. I sent him here. I led him there. I gave. I did this. You know, it's God's initiative. And it's because God first loved the Israelites that Joshua calls on them in verse 14 to revere and serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. It's on the, gra the basis of that gracious initiative of the Lord that Joshua issues then a shocking call to the Israelites. And we get it in verse 14, uh, which I did not read to you yet, but uh, Joshua has reviewed all this gracious initiative of God, and then on that basis he says, okay, now what I need you to do in response to God's gracious initiative is turn away from the gods which your fathers served across the river and in Egypt and start serving Yahweh. This is a shocking statement. God's done all these things for Israel. He's been acting on Israel's behalf since the time of Abraham, which was roughly in 2000 BC, the birth of Abraham, all the way down to the time of Joshua. Joshua died in about 1190 BC. That's nearly a thousand years. It's 810 to be precise, but nearly a thousand years. And Joshua says that the people have been toting the idols of Mesopotamia and Egypt around with them the whole time, 810 years. All through the migration to Canaan, all through the sojourn in Egypt, all through the 40 years of wilderness wandering, all through the victories of the conquest, they've been worshiping idols. Can that really be true? Well, we don't have many direct references to these gods, 
that Joshua is talking about. But we do have a few. We have a couple of examples in Genesis 32 where there's a reference to Rachel and the household gods. In Exodus 32, Aaron made a golden calf for the Israelites to worship. So we do have a few examples of the other gods that uh, they were toting around with them and, and that they had installed in their houses. But Joshua is telling us that they had idols all this time. From the time of Abraham and the patriarchs to the time of Moses and the Exodus, all through the time of Joshua and the conquest, they've had idols. What we see here is that it was easier to bring the Israelites out of Mesopotamia than it was to get Mesopotamia out of the Israelites. It was easier to get the Israelites out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the Israelites. God had brought the Israelites out of these idolatrous lands, but the Israelites had brought the idols of these lands with them. And so in a very dramatic passage, Joshua demands that the people make a choice about which gods they will serve. <coughs> and this is in Joshua 24, <coughs> verses 14 and 15, if you'd like to follow along. Joshua confronts the people. He says, now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you're unwilling to serve the Lord, you need to choose today whom you will serve, whether it's going to be the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <clears throat> well, the people seemed shocked by this confrontation. <laughs> And uh, they insist that they would never forsake the Lord. In verses 16 through 18, here's how they respond. The people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. It's the Lord who protected us all along the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. It's the Lord who drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord. He is our God. Now, Joshua responds to them, and his answer may seem even more shocking. And we get his response in verses 19 and 20. He said... You can't serve the Lord. Who did this? They say all this. Of course, we would never shy away from serving the Lord. It's the Lord we serve. It's the Lord who did this. Of course, we'll serve the Lord. And he says, no, you won't. You can't. All right. For he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. All right, so Joshua says they can't serve God because they're still toting around all these idols. In the end, I won't read the rest of the verses, but in the end, verse 22, the people insist that they'll serve the Lord, and Joshua says, okay, if you're really going to do it, verse 23 Put away those foreign gods that you've been toting around 
ever since we left Egypt and even before that and get serious about your relationship with God. Incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 23. Now, you might think that that was the end of it, that uh, they put away these idols and the Israelites lived happily ever after with this great relationship between them and God. But it turned out that it was far easier to get the people out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the people. (laughs) And the perennial problem throughout the rest of the Old Testament was idolatry. It didn't end here. During the period of the judges, the Israelites worshiped the Baals, they abandoned the Lord, and they followed other gods, Judges 2, 11 through 15. During the period of the united monarchy, when there was one king reigning in a united Israel, Solomon built high places for the Moabite king, Chemosh, and he built um, um, high places. These are elevated places for worship for another god named Molech. This was the god of the Ammonites. He built that. Uh, these were both built on the Mount of Olives. Jay's been to Israel. Mount of Olives is right across the Kidron Valley. He built high places um, overlooking the temple. Uh, and the text says that Solomon built, uh, just like he built these high places, he built high places for all the other gods of his many wives and led the Israelites into idolatry. During the period of the divided kingdom, when the nation had split into north and south, had a king in the north and a king in the south, many of its kings did similar things, both in the north and the south. One of the worst, um, I, I love reading the story of Manasseh because it's so, uh, so it's, it's like uh, watching a, a, a horrible train wreck. <laughs> you can't look away, he's just so bad. Manasseh was one of the worst of the kings. He set up altars to Baal inside the Solomonic temple. And fertility got a statue called an Asherah pole. It's a depiction of the Canaanite fertility goddess Asherah next to the Ark of the Covenant. And the implication was that uh, the Hebrew god was the uh, male god and Asherah was his wife. And the Asherah pole stood there for more than 50 years. Uh, in Israelite history. He, led, he was really a champion uh, for idolatry uh, in Israelite history. Anyway, that's just a brief sample of the problems of idolatry, and eventually it led to the collapse of both the northern nation of Israel in 722 and the collapse of the southern part of the nation in 586 uh, as Israel kind of rotted from within. Now, we might think that since we're enlightened people living in the 21st century, we're not going to have a problem with idolatry, right? I mean, come on. Do any of you worship a statue of wood? Do any of you worship a god carved of stone? No. You know, we don't have a problem with idolatry. But if we think it's that simple, we're deceiving ourselves. Way back in 1877, there was a Congregationalist minister named J. Baldwin Brown who wrote this. He said, we shall never understand the spiritual movements of our own or any other generation unless we see that God's controversy with idols and idolatries is the main controversy in the world, all right, even today. And he went on to say that until we understand that and stir ourselves up to destroy the idols of the flesh and of the mind which stand between us and the light of truth, 
We're walking in a vain show, and Babel is written all over our life. That's a quote from um, Brown. Brown understood that an idol doesn't have to literally be a statue of a god, <laughs> right? An idol can be things in our hearts. That's what Brown was saying. Richard Keyes uh, wrote a brilliant 1992 article entitled The Idol Factory, <laughs> in which he talked about idols and how they work in our lives. And he explains that an idol is something, anything, something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. Now, how many things can substitute for God? <laughs> anything, right? <laughs> Could be anything. The book of James calls this spiritual adultery in James 4.4, 4, when we link our heart with something other than God. And idolatry, according to this definition of Keyes and Baldwin and uh, uh, James, idolatry can occur anytime people give the love and devotion that belongs to God. Idolatry occurs anytime we give that love and devotion to something else other than to God, right? It's, we could make the, it could be achievement. It could be the gifts and talents God's bestowed to us. We could make those idols. It could be money. It could be uh, beauty. Uh, it could be youth, worshiping youth. It could be sex. It could be stardom. It could be environmentalism. It could be a political figure. It could be a political party. It could be nationalism. Any of these things. <laughs> could be things that we can give the love and devotion that belong to God to any of those things. Like any of those, many others could be idols. Ezekiel called these kinds of devotions the idols of our hearts in Ezekiel 14.3. Anything can be an idol. Uh, we, I'm out of time, so I'll just say uh, if we do turn to idols, idols can be very alluring, <laughs> and they can take control of our lives. Uh, maybe some of you here have struggled with compulsive behaviors or, uh, or even addictions, God forbid, you know, and so you, you know how uh, uh, an, something can become an idol and just take control of our lives. One of my fa favorite stories of all time is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Anybody, has anybody read those books? Anybody see the movies, the Lord of the Rings? Jay, I see a, f a few hands. Yeah, I love the stories of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, J.R.R. Tolkien used a single ring as a symbol of the attraction and tyranny of idolatry. Uh, if you remember the story, when you pick the one ring up and look on the inside of it, there was a little inscription, and here's what the inscription said. It said, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. The ring symbolized idolatry. It would draw people to itself and then take them down to darkness and depravity right? What a powerful description of the effects of an idol. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's what J.R.R. Tolkien uses the ring to symbolize. Well, I'm out of time. What, what is, uh, Joshua's call is no less relevant for us in the 21st century AD than it was in the 12th century BC. 
How can we serve the Lord? Well, Joshua has issued his summons. He calls the people in verse 15 to choose to serve the Lord. He calls the people, putting 23, to put away the idols. He's talking about literal idols, but we can respond, putting away the idols of our hearts. And in verse 23, inclining our hearts to the Lord. That's the call that is pervasive throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and it's the call of the New Testament, choosing to serve the Lord. Acts 2.38, the people heard Peter preach, and they said, what can we do to be saved? Well, you can make the choice to respond to the Lord, to serve him. Put away the idols of our hearts and incline your hearts to the Lord. May we all choose to serve the Lord. May we put away the idols of our hearts today and may we incline our hearts to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that uh, you are our God. As we look at this passage in Joshua 24, we see a story, Joshua's review of Hebrew history, we see a story of gracious initiative, your gracious initiative, where you led the Hebrew people through all these twists and turns, all these journeys to and fro. And um, we see that really they weren't fully faithful to you at any point through this process. And yet you persisted in your faithful, faithfulness to them. We're so grateful that you are a God who persists in your love and gratefulness um, despite our own, ability, own inability to perfectly respond to you. We're grateful for that never-failing love and kindness that you show. May we seek, O oh Lord, to choose to serve you. May we seek to put away the idols of our hearts permanently. And may we seek to incline our hearts to you today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.